Street Lecture 8, Rabbi Blyweiss, Moshe Rabbeinu is described uh, as Anav Mikol Adam. It's the only time that the word in the Torah appears describing somebody. He's more humble, modest than any other person. It's the thing you want on your resume. That's the um, one of the highest praises we could call a person is Anav. Interestingly, in the world, it's not humility is not necessarily cherished as a virtue. <coughs> if anything, yeah, he's very humble, and the, and the usual association is nebuch, you know, poor guy, right? Yeah, right, something like that. But by us, you can't be a gadol Israel without without not false humility. It has to be hard won humility that. It's misunderstood. People think that if you're humble, you have low self-esteem. It's the opposite. You know exactly who you are vis-a-vis Akadosh Baruch Hu, and you know exactly what He creates you for, and you function accordingly. Moshe had no problem with self-esteem. He just had no illusions about himself and his weaknesses. Kvad peh, the kvad lashon. He tells, he describes himself: I'm heavy of speech, heavy of tongue, and Akadosh Baruch Hu loves him for it. He says, "You're exactly the man for the job." for the receiving of the Torah. The opposite corollary one finds, I mean, one of my colleagues said this once, that at the beginning of the year, you meet your students and they exhibit different uh, dispositions. He said the one disposition that he davens that he doesn't find among his students, and sometimes he's lucky and sometimes he's less lucky, is um, if the guy's arrogant, if he's a Baal Gaiva, there's very little work he finds that he can do with the guy in the course of the year. A Baal Gaiva knows already, there's nothing you can teach him. Right? We're supposed to be constantly receptive and open and, yeah, tell me something, Rebbe. That's, that's our mode of being. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu always was throughout his life, and that's what made him the devil that he was. He was born on the 7th of Adar. He was born, according to the Gemara and Sota, already mahul, glowing in the room where he was. There was, a, there was something about his neshama that, that shone literally in the physical world. That wasn't just when he came down from Harsinai with his face aglow. Karen Panav, his uh, face literally glowed. Um, immediately upon birth, he could walk. And uh, that was a pattern that continued throughout his perfect 120 years. That's why one of the, one of the last Parshas in the Torah is Parshas Vayelech. Vayelech Moshe, look at Rashi there at the beginning of the Parsha, describes Moshe on his last day as he completes his address to Klal Yisrael at near the end of the Torah. He literally walks in front of the people exhibiting no infirmities, no decadence, no decay. For all of his 120 years, he strolled, he strolled by the people like a young man. And there's something about the physical capabilities of our great leader that reflected, obviously, his spiritual greatness. He was born circumcised. Yes. Also, somehow, something, he was, he was of this world, but not quite. Uh, there's something of a perfection about him. Some people find it difficult to learn from him because, sort of like Avramovina, you have a similar, similar uh, quality here. We don't see the work in progress. So it's hard for us to know how to take a lesson from him. In contrast, let's say, there's a story Rav Wein tells about the Chofetz Chaim. Rav Wein, Wein's father-in-law, uh, was a Ben Bais. He was an orphan and stayed by the Chofetz Chaim for a period when he was young. And he observed uh, the following episode. The, the Chofetz Chaim 
was a Kohen, and Kohen, Kohanim, uh, we're going to see this quality of Levi as well, Kohanim sometimes are known to have a hot temper, and the Chavetz Chaim, apparently, you wouldn't have known it if you didn't know him personally, but he had, he struggled with his temper. He struggled with lots of midos. He struggled with the issue of Lashon Hara, that's why he wrote the book, to, come be, to become better about it. And in this one I- I instance, there was the Balabos, a guy comes over to the house, and starts to antagonize the Chavetz Chaim. You can't picture such a thing. Like, why in the world would anybody antagonize the Chavetz Chaim? What are you thinking? Olam Abba, are you forfeiting it? But the guy, obviously, whatever it was, politics, he was, he was giving, the, giving the Gadol a hard time. And, um, and, and the Chavetz Chaim held his cool, kept no problem, closed the door, though, and was, when nobody else was around, or so he thought, the boy was standing in the corner, um, he was agitated. And he started pacing, and he started speaking to himself and calming himself down. Something to the effect of, I hope I got the story right, I'm telling it, it's not obviously not firsthand, but something to the effect of, oh good, Yisrael Mayor, look at you, Mr. Chofetz Chaim, right? You can't even like keep your own temper down. And he, the boy saw him talk himself out of his agitation down to a cool state of mind. Which is a story that if we're trying to learn Musa and inspiration, sometimes it's easier for us common plebeian folk, you know, like me, I go, that's all I have. I can date, I can deal with that one. And okay, yeah, I have a temper, I can, I can struggle with it, talk myself out of it, good, I've learned something. Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't appear to us quite like that. He seems to have, again, he's born Mahul, he walks, he has, he has these qualities from the get-go. Fine, I think the message is, some people are indeed transcendent. They're beyond us, and as much as they're role models, but I can't really attain their level. But that doesn't mean I can't try. And there were certain formidable qualities. I have a whole drasha on this, but I'll mention it since we're considering Moshe Beda's personality. Do not consider this a, uh, a complete appraisal of Moshe. It's simply a, a glimpse at the man. He was, he and really other leaders of Klal Yisrael had a salient feature, a distinctive feature as a leader. And we find this in the first four episodes about him. We really don't know much about him. We find him saving the Jews from the, from the wicked Egyptian tyrants and other instances. He was the classic illustration of a really important expression if you don't know it. He was Nose Baol Im Chavero. Your problem is my problem. Your simchas are my simchas. I have such a, a, a fine-tuned sense of empathy with the other person that they, their issues are mine, and one finds that with Moshe. He didn't just care about people, he was as if vicariously living their lives through them. Uh, that was the degree of concern that we're, we're working on. And qualities like that, even though Moshe on some level appears to us like he's like in the stratosphere of excellence as a human being, but I can still emulate that, as distant as he is from me. There's a question about, we're going to deal with a lot of what's called agadata. Some, some of you are prone to, uh, and I am too, to, uh, very partial to agadata. Um, agadata, we have to be careful. It's not that we deny the literal meaning, but don't get sidetracked in it. It's usually the physical descriptions are meant to give a sense, some kind of spiritual sense of the person. We can hear that the, the height and the... You know, the, the nature of the person, it's more than just that. Remember again that Moshe Rabbeinu was only three steps away, excuse me, his father was only three steps removed from Adam in terms of people knowing one another. Remember, remember how that worked? You had Adam knew Mesushelach, who knew Shem, who knew Yaakov, and then and Amram knew Yaakov. So in terms of getting what we call an ish mipi ish, each person testifying, going back to the testimony of the predecessor, he's very close to this chain of, uh, 
of the tradition. It meant that Moshe could recount to them authentically the past. And we learn from the past. We're, we've always been We've always been a historically minded people. And so Moshe Rabbeinu was literally had his finger on the pulse. He knew exactly what was going on. And in Mitzrayim, you remember the nature of Klai Yisrael. They were really high level, spiritual, intelligent, intellectually curious people. They delighted in hearing the stories. They wanted to hear more from Moshe Rabbeinu. Tell us more about our history, about our heritage. These were Megillos. This is the, the, the Medrash and Shemos Rabbah tells us about this. They, they actually had Megillos, parchment. And, and they say, read us a story, Moshe. But it wasn't just read us a story. It was tell us our heritage. They knew that Hashem had promised to redeem this, this group of individuals who was not yet a nation, not yet a, a distinctive people, but clearly the descendants of the Avos. And when the signs would become revealed publicly, they, uh, they responded with great excitement. They saw the promises unfolding, as it were, right in front of them with great excitement. When Moshe is standing by the burning bush, in typical of his uh, humility, Hashem asked him to play a role and he refused. He said, you could do better than me. He refused for a total of six times. By the way, where do we have that in our lives, in Jewish life? Let's say to be a shalich tzibor, the Mishnah brings it down the halacha, that a, that a person, you, you, don't, you don't run before the amun. It's not something we should fight over and generally resist. We resist the, the glory, the, the honors. Moshe proposes, you know, Aaron, my brother, is better for the job. It's, I don't know about you, but your knowledge of leadership, think about this in contrast with the leaders of the world today and how everybody's all about politics. How can I stay in power? And if, if their power is already, uh, you know, cr- uh, crescendoed, like, you know, Barack Obama's now, you know, almost, almost finished with this term, then it's all about how can I build my legacy? And what are they going to remember me for? Rarely is it a, a, a question of running away from greatness, but that's, that's what we, we look for in our leaders. Uh, Moshe was an author. What did he write? The Torah. Absolutely. He wrote the Chamisha Chum the the, the, the the books, of, the right, that best-selling book ever. Uh, he wrote another sefer. Um, the Gemara Baba Basra attributes authorship, human authorships. Obviously, all of them are divinely inspired. All of the authors are prophets. But um, each of the books, each of the twenty-four books in the Tanakh, in the in the Bible, and you got it right. Each of the twenty-four books in the in the Bible had an individual author. Moshe had another book. Eov. Eov was also authored by Moshe Rabbeinu, which is extremely significant and worthy of discussion. What we don't know is when Eov lived. That's the long discussion throughout Baba Basra. Multiple, when did he live? Who was he exactly? Was he Jewish? Was he not Jewish? All kinds of ambiguity surrounding Eov. But the book itself is attributed to Moshe. If there are 50 ways in wisdom, Chazal tell us, Moshe mastered 49 of them. Moshe Rabbeinu? 50 ways Oh, that's interesting. I don't, it's not identified. Meaning it's trying... The image that we're left with is he almost attained everything. It's, help me here, my calculus is off. What's the term for the, um, as, it, as it's graph, as it's always approaching uh, and never gets parabola, there? Exponential. Parabola. Parabola is the word I'm looking for. It never hits the line. It always gets closer and never never hits it. I think that's the idea. Meaning, at the end of the day, There's still, asymptote. motion asymptote. That was the Asymptote. Thank you. Asymptote is exactly what I'm looking for. And asymptote, and that's that's what it is to be a human being. You can attain the ultimate level. You can speak to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. 
as Moshe did, punning el punning face to face. He enjoyed of the eleven levels of prophecy that exists potentially. Go look at the second section of the Rambam's Mor Nevuchim to understand what these different levels of prophecy is. Moshe only Moshe achieved the highest level of Nevuah ever. He spoke whereas other uh, other prophets speak through the Aspaklaria Sheino Meira, which means like a foggy glass like picture a shower door that's kind of fogged over and you kind of make out a good bar because you can't quite tell. Moshe Rabbeinu's glass was a aspaklaria hamiira. It's a clear glass. He had a direct he didn't see directly, but he got as close as humanly possible, and that's the asymptote. That's this quality of the 49 levels of wisdom that's not quite the 50th level without actually identifying what that level is. Lokam bi Israel od. no other prophet arose to this level. He is the greatest. He spoke to a Baruch who is described as one speaks to a friend that's unique. Hashem, in response, calls Moshe, nobody else gets this on their resume, Moshe is called the Evid. He's the true servant, which again is a sign of, in, in, in other circles, that would be a put down. But by us, we say, yeah, I'm Hashem's servant. That's, that's the highest praise you could, you, could, uh, you could hope for. As we said, Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't speak well, um, which is a tradition maintained by many rabbis till today. The, um, he was a reluctant leader, as we saw. He's the best kind. As Jews, we care about the past, we care about the present, we care very much about the future. And we want to leave a legacy, and a major part of our leg legacy, if possible, is through our children, if we're, if we're Zohim, we merit having children. That's, that doesn't always work out for everybody. We're going to meet a lot of Gedolim who never had children. Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, pay, make a mental note of this, he has a couple sons. We don't know much about them. They clearly are not that as distinguished as their father. Uh, but we're going to meet a certain um, Yehonasan Ben Gershom, uh, who is, let's say, has uh, doesn't quite carry out the legacy. And one of the lessons we're going to see is that there's no guarantee for one's uh, offspring. You can try hard, you can be a good parent, sometimes you make good, uh, good decisions, sometimes you make bad mistakes. Where we saw this um, Chazal criticizing Yitzchak and Rivka's mistake in their upbringing of Esav, uh, but there's no guarantee. And that's important to know too, sometimes parents blow it, for sure. But sometimes they do what they can, and the kid just doesn't work out. We'll, we'll, we'll meet those kinds of people as well. He's called in the Pasuk, Yonasan ben Gersham ben Menashe, but the Nun of Menashe is raised in the air. Because the, it's as if, as it were, the Mepharshim say, it's as if the Pasuk itself couldn't bring itself to identify Moshe as associated with his own grandson. So they, they added a Nun and raised it in the air as a way of somehow distancing Moshe from the, uh, from the fate of his grandson. In approximately the year 1312, before the Common Era, the Jews go out of Mitzrayim. This Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is mentioned frequently by us. We talk about it on Shabbos and all the Moadim and all the holy festivals, during Kiddush and other times. It's a Torah obligation to remember our roots. It's one of the six obligations to remember things. What are the six things we have to remember every morning? If you pay attention to the very end of Shachris, not everybody says this, but we have an obligation daily to remember six things. You have it? You know what they are? Yeah. What are they? Yeah. You have it's, it in this? The destruction of Amalek. Uh, right, Destru uh, destroying uh, Amalek. Miriam. Miriam, remember what happened to Miriam? We just had them in Parsha. Two of them were in last week's Parsha. Shabbos. Zahor, Yom Shabbos. Matan Torah. Right, Maman Sinai. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And Asher Yitzhak Semetz Hashem Elokeichem, that you angered Hashem in the desert. Those are the six. 
the reason on a just totally straightforward level is that it shows Hakaras Hashem to Kaddish Baruch Hu for creating our nation, giving us this unique fate, this legacy in the world. The eldest born are struck dead across Egypt. The Jews remain unharmed in their homes. They offer the first Korban Pesach in history. They eat the maror. They take the bread with them. That Seder is re-experienced by all of us and has always been the case with all of our families every year since and has become the linchpin. It is the underlying force of what we call the Jewish family. Jewish family is not Jewish family without the Seder. That should form, ideally, your children's earliest memories. Should be the best memories. Pesach Seder should be a joyous time. Should be a time that, uh, that they that get excited about. And that defines us as a people. We are unique. There's no other religion that's like this where our revelation, Yetzirah Mitzrayim, followed by Matan Torah, was experienced as a people. Whereas all other religions, so-called religions, were started by an individual or a group of elitist prophets. And, you know, you're basically all the practitioners of that religion have to sort of take their word for it, that there was a revelation. Yeah, yeah, just trust Jesus. Yeah, right. Uh, right? He, he, he'll make it all work for you. You just have to believe. But you're going, I mean, on a massive leap of faith. Think about this. There's a famous argument. The Ramban develops this idea. The Kuzari talks about this idea even before the Ramban. The Jews as a nation collectively experienced this epiphany. The Yetzirah Mitzrayim, Mama Harsinai. And we have been recalling it every single year, not at a convocation of the leaders of the Jews as if there's an NCSY convention, right, that, that, that's called. No, in our own homes, every year, ish mi pi ish, father to son, to son, to son, to son, and mother to daughter, um, all through the generations, I ask you, at which point, given the nature of the Jewish people, somewhat a cantankerous, cantankerous group, something we've talked about, am kshay Two Jews, three opinions. So this group of people, as we are, could anybody have made this up at any point? If every single year we've been doing the exact same uh, thing, re-experiencing vicariously Yitzhak Mitzrayim through the Pesach Seder, there's no time it could have been made up. To me, it's the strongest, and it's not just to me. It seems to me, I'm a partial because it's the strongest logical proof that it's true, that it's been happening, because. Right? It's either true, as we've been saying it, or somebody somewhere along the line got really clever and said, hey Jews, I got a great plan. Let's all get together and make up this whole Seder. And we'll tell all these details and you'll put it over to your kids. How could they have done that? Nobody would have cooperated. Are you kidding? They would have disagreed and argued over the details. I don't want a ship to actually put those kinds of, I don't like frogs. What's that termites? Yeah. You know, they never agree on the details. But no, there's one unified story that we, that we, we tell and, we, and we, we, we consider. They left Egypt, as we said yesterday, Hamushim. Only a minority of us got out. And that's another pattern in history. We've always had attrition. How do you understand that? How do we understand that uh, even today, the immense numbers, the intermarriage, the assimilation that's, uh, that, that's chipping away at the, at, the, at, the, at the already small Jewish people, the uh, very straightforward explanation is that it's hard to be Jewish. It's hard to be what we call mekabel ol malchut shemaim, which is to receive the yoke of heaven. It's so much easier to go out and indulge your desires and live a do, do, live a profligate kind of a lifestyle. Not be easier. Yeah, you know, get all this learning. Let's go out for a Big Mac. 
and, and, and so people give in to the Yitzhahara. The core of the Jews recognize it as a higher truth and have always clung to that and have always sustained it. The flesh pots of Egypt may, may be physically more appealing, but Jews understand Emes. And what's interesting, today you hear doomsday theories about the extinction of the Jews, the intermarriage levels getting beyond proportion in America, rates of intermarriage, what are the latest rates now? I'm blocking on them. I think they exceed 50%, but in, in, in parts of Europe, no, that's not true, not 50%. In, part, in certain communities, in parts of Europe, they exceed 50% of the Jewish of the Jewish communities. They just have no Jewish connections. There's, 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 nothing, there's nothing there, it's just not enough. It's not enough to keep them compelled. So people are sometimes lamenting, and they, you see them, the, the hand, hand wringing that goes on. Oh no, what's gonna be with the Jews? What's forgotten is that We've got a solid core, and if you trace all of history, we've always had a very, very strong, solid core. The Jews are not at risk for extinction. We're doing just fine, thanks very much. That Jews leave the fold is a tragedy, and we never close the door. We also don't, uh, we, we're not really uh, concerned that we're going to, Kanish uh, Baruch was promised that uh, we'll, we'll see out the end of history. The Mechilta tells us that Prophet Yechezkel, when he encountered what's called the Maiser Mechava, which is the ultimate spiritual experience, did not see that his spirituality did not come close to what the Shivcha, what a small maid, Jewish maidservant saw when she came to Yamsuf. She was on a higher level, the lowest of Jews, as it were, um, than the great mighty Yechezkel by the Maiser Mechava. Um, they were that, that was their level. Shiras Hayam, when the Jews encounter Hashem's revelation and his miracles, is the deepest expression of Amuna. Because I'll say words can be limited, but when you sing, Ashira Lashem Bechayai, we said by uh, Rosh Chodesh, by the famous chapter in Psalms and Tehillim, I sing to Hashem with all my life. Shira taps into something primal and deep in our, in our Kishkas, and it's the ultimate expression of Amuna as we have it. And we come out of Egypt and immediately there are problems and the Jews complain there's not enough food and what about the water and so on and who attacks us when we're down and we're bedraggled and Amalek comes and, attract, and, and attacks us. We came, Yaakov comes all ready for Avodah Hashem. Think about Amalek. Yaakov is coming back to Eretz Yisrael after being, I, I'm doing a flashback, after being with Lavan and he is ready to do a bonus Hashem, and he's weighed down by all of his stuff. Remember when he comes back from Levant, he's a wealthy man, he's got all this physical stuff, and who's there waiting to attack him? Esau. Esau. And think about how parallel it is, right? Now Am Yisrael is coming out of Egypt, and they're weighed down by all this great wealth. Remember, they got all the spoils of the Yamsuf and all of the Egyptian spoils. They got all these physical needs, and indeed, they're distracted by physicality. That's why they're complaining by, about things like food and water. And immediately, Asaph's descendants, Amalek, attacks. And that's a hint to us. When you get overly consumed with physicality, with this worldly concerns, look out. That's where Amalek tends to strike. Another pattern in history. We'll see this too. Hashem reminding us what's in, what's, what matters most. Who's Amalek? What do they symbolize for us historically? They understand on some primal level that there's a creator of the universe and they laugh in his face. And the danger of Amalek and the reason we're meant to blot out the memory of Amalek is Amalek is somebody who not only is um, 
immune from a connection to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, but they despise anybody who has it. And when we come, when we come around uh, to the modern times, we talk about the Mein Kampf and the Nazi machine, uh, we'll see a similar quality. Some actually say halachically they may have been Amalek. They certainly possess similar qualities to Amalek. It's that quality of the Nazi sh- soldier who sees the righteous old man in his talus and tefillin and he makes him get down on his hands and knees and take his talus and scrub the dirty floor with it and then he and then he absent then the same Nazi shoulder soldier absentmindedly takes out his gun and shoots the guy dead. Because there's no meaning in this world and you can't reason with them. There's no talking to them. And that's that's Amalek. It's the seed of ultimate evil. Evil you can't compromise a you can't broker a compromise with him. You have to totally destroy it and when you don't look out Shaul Hamelech, they're gonna rise up and swallow you whole. They come out of Egypt, they had to go through the slavery, the phase of slavery um, to go down, you have to come back up again, they understand what it, what it would mean to be a true Eved Hashem. They get to Har Sinai, they are rearranged by holiness, they're in the camp, nobody's allowed to, other than Moshe is allowed to go up and ascend the mountain. An earthquake reverberates and shakes the mountain and shakes the world, literally changing the entire universe. The primal water of creation. Remember back in creation when Akadosh Baruch Hu contained the water? There are three levels of water, big discussion in mystical circles. There is a the lower level, the subterranean level of water exists. Gemara uh, describes it as existing some, uh, some distance beneath the surface of the land. And it's constantly there, lying in wait, threatening to bubble up and overwhelm the world and flood the world. I refer you to a certain Masef that may be familiar to you called Makos. Yud Aleph Amud Aleph for, by David Melech, a very famous, important story that we're certainly going to discuss here about that water. And that same water at Har Sinai was bubbling beneath the surface and threatening to erupt and flood the world. And it didn't. Because Am Yisrael stood bravely and Ishachad, Belevachad, uni- with unity, said, uttered the critical words. Nasev Nishma. Thanks, Aaron. Nasev Nishma. And with that, a little shard of pottery came miraculously to the opening of the depths and plugged a hole in it. The mountains of the world move, figuratively and literally. Har Carmel, Har Tavor are all. Uh, are all brought down to size. Little Har Sinai and its modesty is, is, uh, is, the, is the candidate for Matan Taira. This is yet another one of those events that confound the scientific dating tools. You know, all the world changes after Matan Taira. Do we know where Har Sinai is nowadays? There is no way in the world that we can identify it. So we don't know. We have a general tradition that there's a Sinai Peninsula and that it's somewhere there. When you travel in the Sinai, if you travel in the Sinai, I don't, I don't encourage it these days. It's a dangerous place for most Jews. I had um, seven really memorable days of, uh, before I was from that I, I hiked in, through the Sinai. And we went to a place that they call traditionally Mount Sinai. Of course, there's no basis to, to tradition. At the foot of Mount Sinai is, of course, a Christian monastery because Christians claim all these things as their own. Um, and inside the monastery is a courtyard. In the courtyard, this is one of my favorite all-time pictures that I ever shot. Uh, photographs that ever, that ever took. Um, there is a thing on the wall that looks like a bit of a monstrosity. You, you don't even know what it is. And I saw, huddling around this picture, a group of Japanese tourists. And they were all busily snapping their cameras at this picture. And I saw the picture is this 
tacky bush with all this Christmas tree lighting going through it and the sign underneath, Moses' burning bush. And so I took a picture of this group of Japanese tourists all taking pictures of Moses' burning bush at the foot of Mount Sinai. And if you believe all of that, I've got some swamp land in Miami, actually, uh, that I can sell you. Montanitori changes a lot, of, a lot of the situation. I think we mentioned this, but I'm going to reinforce this. It used to, or maybe I mentioned this to Gamar this morning. Um, it used to be that there was an obligation on all of humanity. Yeah, yeah, I was answering your question this morning. All of humanity had a mitzvah called Purvu. For Montanitori, that changes. Um, Non-Jews no longer have to have kids. Only Klal Yisrael has an obligation to perpetuate the species. Um, again, don't get any vigilante ideas. You're not meant to go around and tell them to stop. Uh, they're not doing any prohibition by having kids, but um, there's no mitzvah involved. From this point, all of history now hinges on the Jews. It doesn't make us a superior race. Um, in many ways, we could be inferior. What we are is the people who stood Nasev and, and said Nasev and Nishma. As you know, the famous Medrash tells us that Hashem gave the Torah, gave the option of the Torah to all the nations. They all rejected it, and, uh, and, and, and we accepted it. And because of that, we earned a special role in Hashem's ongoing drama of this history as being the Am, Am Skula, as being this designated people. But whereas we're the chosen people, and therefore when we rise to the challenge and do well, it's true, we rank above the non-Jews, but a corollary of that that's not always appreciated, when we don't rise to the challenge and do poorly, we're actually worse than the non-Jews. Meaning it's a, like you want to call our position a privilege, it's also a potential penalty. If we, don't, if we don't do it, what's that? It's an opportunity. Right, it's an opportunity, but you don't rise to the opportunity, we're actually worse than the non-Jews. Um, only the, uh, as a whole idea as well, that, that, should be, that, that deserves to be fleshed out, but in the same way that a, that a Jew attains potential high level of Kedusha, only Jews have a potentially low level of Tuma. A, a Jew is mitame b'magu b'masa, a non-Jew not, in the, to the same degree. Because, you know, when you have something of immense potential for greatness, there's also an immense potential for the opposite as well. Only Jews are called, are designated by the term bonim, as it were, where Hashem's children, as we quoted the mission of Perkiavos. Hashem, as the Zohar tells us, Istakle v'araisa uvara alma. Hashem looked in the Torah, created the world. The Torah, as we understand, often said, is the blueprint of the world. It predates the world. Uh, and everything is organized around that basic assumption. And the Torah was out there and ready for humanity who didn't want it. And so the Jews stepped into the fray and took it. It transcends time, and if we keep the Torah, we, we become part of that transcendence. If there was ever a point in time that Jews were not engaged in Torah, in learning Torah, in keeping Torah, that's what it is to be, Oisek Torah. if there was ever such a moment, the world would vaporize. This idea of divine re revelation, I, I see I was a little out of, out of order in my notes, but I'm going to quote the uh, Rambam on the subject, in the Sodia Torah, he, he says, Klal Yisrael didn't, and this is, this is directly responding to your comment, Arya, before, Klal Yisrael didn't believe in Moshe because of the miracles he performed. Rambam says, had they, they might have suspected there was slate of hand or some kind of sorcery. At Sinai, their own eyes saw Hashem's revelation. This is the only real proof that Moshe's prophecy was true and above suspicion. Their generation was independently, independent intellectually. They didn't necessarily just clamor to Moshe because of his charisma. He wasn't charismatic. 
they would have been the last to accept a new system unless they personally, individually were fully persuaded by the truth, by the truth of it. And at, without reservation at Harsinai, they all, in one voice, loudly proclaimed Naset Venishma. Part of what we're doing here is trying to make you um, knowledgeable Jews that you can talk to even non-Jews or skeptics or cynics. Um, I, I do introduce occasionally some other voices, voices of uh, you know, criticism or kfira. So if you're familiar with the Bible critics who say, who say, no, nah, no, nah, this is all clever stuff written by people. Sometimes they say, not such clever stuff. They say, you know, this is just one divine revelation. There are others. Probably the most famous, what they claim is parallel to the Torah, is something called the Hammurabi Code. It was a code of law enacted by a 6th century Babylonian king. They claim... Uh, yeah, wait, much oh, of course it's, of course it's, I, I, not 6th century. It's the 6th king of Babylon. That's what I meant to say. And it was, they dated to about 1790 before the Common Era. And that would be in contrast with Matantori, which is 400 years later. But you know what? Even that dating alone, you realize... Anybody, anybody into archaeology here? Know something about dating? They date generally with what they call carbon-14, dating the organic matter, usually in, in, in pottery and, and things like that. The experts admit to you that there's a huge margin of error, of error, and the further back you go, the greater the margin of error. And once you get, and this is from one of the top experts in Israel, I have the following line, his name is Tzvi uh, Greenhut, who says that about 2,500 years ago, the margin of error becomes immense. And we're talking about something that's well, well, it's like 3,500 years ago, where there's a huge margin of error. And so what we would say is actually that you get from the 1790 to 1312, about four or 500 years span, we would say they were inspired by the Torah and wrote their own. That would be our response to the Bible critics. You know, they, we didn't get it from them, they got it from us. They count in the Hammurabi, on the Hammurabi Code 281 laws, how do we know about this thing? It was a stone tablet discovered in 1901 in Khuzestan, which is today's Iran. If you study their laws, this is, my, this is my editorial comment. You can come up with your own. They are coarse, unsophisticated, kind of the way a tribal chief of a really pagan, unrefined tribe would have written a Torah without much higher moral inspiration. I'll give you a few examples of some of the laws in the Hammurabi Code. If a son strikes his father, his hands shall be cut off. If a man strikes a pregnant woman, causing her to miscarry and die, his daughter is put to death. This one, it takes it to a person who's, I mean, his daughter, what did she have to do with anything? Oh. If a man puts out the eye of his equal, his eye shall be put out. What do we say? An eye for an eye? It's monetary. If anyone commits a robbery and is caught, he shall be put to death. If during an operation a patient dies, the arm of the surgeon must be cut off. We talked about the legacy of Levi. We also talked about the Kohanim. We're going to now play a newly emerged, as Levi emerges after the Chet Egel, Mila Shem Elai. They follow their ancestor Aaron's wonderful qualities. He's a Rodev Shalom, so they become Rodefe Shalom, between, bringing peace between different kinds of Jews, between a man and his wife. Um, that's the role that the Kohen's supposed to play. The, they, are, they seek Pshara, which is compromise in the best sense. You know what good, good definition of compromise is? You have an argument with your friend. Let's say it's a monetary issue. Ideally, before you go to base team, before you have to go to a court of law to figure out you know, where one person's going to be happy and the other one's not, 
what you should do is come to terms. A compromise is something that you can both live with and neither one is happy with. Right? You know what? I want to win. Right? But I can live with it. That's shalom. That's, that's what's characteristic. And the Gemara in Sanhedrin describes this as being one of the mythos of our own. Our own is meant to be removed from political discourse. Separation, as we say, of the Lahabdil of church and state where he doesn't play a political role. He is somebody that the people loves, just like Aaron, when he died, all the nation wept. So too the Kohanim are meant to be above and beyond personal gain, personal interest. That's why, significantly, when we're about to go into Eretz Israel tomorrow, because we're going, I don't know if you know this, I'm going to take you to Eretz Israel tomorrow, for the first time in history. We're going to be vicariously relive the, uh, the conquering of the land. Um, they're not given nachos. They don't have a portion. Their portions, the Levim as well, Levim has been the general tribe of the Kohanim, are given cities, 48 of them, but no one particular plot of land. Because they're, they're spread out, and they're meant to be spread out, representing all of the nation and, and therefore situated among uh, all the tribes. Levi also has a quality, I just mentioned this in the case of the Chafetz Chaim, as Kina, of a zeal to serve Hashem. Sometimes it manifests as an anger. And we find it, what's the most famous idea in the Torah, where we see the quality of kina, with the, of, zealot, of zealotry, in the positive sense of the Levim. Pinchas, thank you. Pinchas, the grandson of Aaron, who steps forward and does the Kiddush Hashem. Knan in Pogimbo, he goes and stabs the, uh, the, the pagans and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, the, those who are, who are desecrating Hashem's name. That was the right thing to do. The Jews sin, the golden calf, was, as most commentators understand it, not an attempt at paganism of, at Avodah Zarah. It was a miscalculation by a nation on new footing, not sure what happened to their leader, and wanting to serve Hashem in a way that was clearly wrong. It was a mistake, but not a badly intended mistake. According to the Pasuk, only about 3,000 Jews participated in the sin, which is less than 1% of the nation. But the, the entire nation is blamed. They should have prevented this minority from doing it. And therefore, Hashem suggests destroying the people. Moshe renegotiates the deal so that the Torah, which was given, and you have to line up, this is a big Russia, compare in, Sefer, in, Sefer, in, in Parshas Yisrael, the initial Matan Torah, study at one point in your lives, the Aser Sedibros, the Ten Commandments, and the wording, it's all posited on Deen. Justice, truth. Now, line it up and compare it with what we call the Yud Gimel Midos that are given a few parshas later, parshas Kisisa, right by the Chaita Egel, and you'll see they're really similar. And they line up, except almost every place that in the Ten Commandments discusses Din, in the Yud Gimel Midos, it's all about Rachamim. You have Din and Rachamim, and the relationship by the Chaita Egel is now redefined as one as compassion. And Hashem says, you recite the Yudgimel Midos HaRachamim, as we're all about to do uh, when we start saying Slichos, unless you're already saying Slichos, Sephardim, we've already begun that. Ashkenazim begins soon enough. Um, the Yudgimel Midos HaRachamim that, uh, that we say is, um, Hashem says, I will give you a chance for kapara, for atonement for your sins. When you say this, a new relationship based on Hashem's compassion for us. Um, that's the legacy of the, uh, of the um, golden cap. It's also Hashem promises Moshe, he will never destroy Am Yisrael in total. Individuals may perish, especially if they disconnect from the main core of Kuala Yisrael. If you don't fast when we're all supposed to be fasting, if you don't participate in our, in our, in our trials and tribulations this summer, if you didn't daven for Kuala Yisrael, presumably you're in trouble. We're supposed to be participants in, in the ongoing saga of our people. Somebody had a question? <coughs>
couple more thoughts and we'll call it a day. Um, originally, we left Egypt. We were supposed to go into Eretz Israel. How soon? Uh, 11 days. Look at the beginning of Sefer Dvarim. 11 days later, we were supposed to travel from Chorev into Eretz Israel. How did we blow it? The Chait Hamaragli, the spies. The spies are blamed, and the rest of the, rest of the nation are blamed for their sin. It was a sin under, really you can say that sin was one under strain. It was a weakness that was revealed, and Hashem said, no, 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 it's not going to work. If you want to go into the land of Eretz Israel, you want to fulfill the Torah in the best way, you're going to have to be a rigor, you're going to have to be solid and ready. And so they were weak with the spies. So one way of understanding the rest of the time in the desert, they completed 40 years in the desert. I love this description. This also comes from Victor Miller. Consider this now 40 years of spiritual boot camp. And what's boot camp in the army? You got to get ready, right? You got to fortify yourselves militarily and physically to prepare for, for combat. Okay, you want to go into Eretz Israel, you've got to go through spiritual boot camp. Those of you who are a little bit tired get this. It's a very powerful image of the Jews in the desert. Hashem wants them to lead the idealized Torah spiritual life, and that's what they do. It's based on the Gemara and Menachos. For the next 40 years, it's all spirituality. They eat man, manna from heaven. They drink water from Miriam's well. Their clothing never wears out. What does this all reinforce? We don't have to worry about stuff. No physicality. Not our issue. Their feet, despite many arduous travels, never swell, never have pain. They have Ananea covered by day, the clouds of glory by day, Amuda Esh by night, a pillar of fire by night. They're fully immersed 24-7 in learning Torah. It's the optimal kind of existence. Me'ena Shemaim al The Shechina is carried in their midst and their holy Mishkan that they built with their own hands. They're arrayed in a perfect military arrangement by tribe around every man, every woman, every child knew exactly their place. It's the ideal kind of a life. Each man in his camp, each one carrying his banner, his flag. Um, it was a very rigorous, tough existence. And at the, at the same time, it was sublime. We like rigorous existence. It's kind of my style of teaching. I push people because I always think people at the end want to be pushed and want to feel a sense of accomplishment at the end of the day. If you take it too easy, then people don't do anything in life. That's what you see a Kaddish Baruch Hu is doing in the desert. Bilam himself, with all of his wickedness and trying to find a weak spot in the people, can't. And he sees their transcendence and he, see, he says to them, the bracha matotu alecha Yaakov, how great are your tents. One of the shots is how great are your Torah tents. Look at this in this physical world, the spiritual life that you've managed to uh, carve out um, for, uh, for yourselves in this world. Tomorrow, join me. We're going to go into Eretz Israel.